Leadership, FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Today's guest is Dan Pombo. Dan is the Managing Director and Global Head of Restructuring at JP Morgan. He focuses on advising and raising capital for distressed companies. Please note that this episode was recorded in December 2020. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Telsia. I want to start way back in the beginning. You started your career as a lawyer and then made the switch to leverage finance, which is how we met. Tell us, how did you manage that switch? There are several people who have been interested in making that move from being a lawyer to being a banker, and you made it happen. How did you do that? I got really lucky across the board. So I was at White and Case for a couple of years. Those were dog years. Those were very long hours. It was back in 1996 when I started at White and Case, and I billed 2,900 hours each of my first two years as an associate, and I was working really hard. I was doing credit agreements and bond deals. White & Case typically represents Deutsche Bank, still does. And back then, White & Case was the go-to firm for all their leveraged finance deals. And so I was representing Deutsche Bank. There was one deal, though, where Chase had won the lead from Deutsche Bank, but the bankers at Chase liked the team at White & Case and kept us on. And so we stayed on, and that was called Patriot American. It was a hotel company. It became Wyndham after a while, and that was in my second year. And they had grown really fast. This company kept acquiring other hotel companies and redoing their credit facilities. They did like three deals in one year, and so they kind of tripled in size for the course of a year which is incredible. They were trying to become the the challenger or the the copycat to Starwood, which had a kind of interesting paired share REIT structure, which was a REIT staple to a C-Corp and they traded as one unit. And Patriot American had the same structure. It was pretty complicated. I got to know the Chase bankers pretty well during that time because that was basically all I worked on because they just kept buying, you know, company after company. So I got to the bankers pretty well. And this was back in the war for talent. You might remember when the banks couldn't find enough qualified associates from business schools because all of the MBAs were going to California to work for startups. And so yes. there was a war for talent. I remember and, that um, well, yeah. So that was lucky for me. They approached me. Uh, One of the bankers on the team said, hey, we think you'd be a good associate. We have a need for someone that knows real estate and that knows syndicated lending. We think you'd be a good banker when you come and apply. So I did. And I was ready to get out of the grinder. It was good timing. And so I applied for the job and did. And I took two steps back. So I was heading into my third year as an associate, but I started as a first year associate at Chase, went through the training program and then came out a newly minted banker. That was in and of itself pretty difficult because I hadn't taken accounting and it was like learning a new language. The training program was pretty bewildering actually, but I made it through and then came out the other side as as an associate and like hit the line 
the luck kept breaking my way because the first deal that I got staffed on was that same company, Patriot American, who had grown too fast, too quickly, and then had a huge liquidity crunch and desperately needed a recapitalization. And so a lot of the senior bankers at Chase were very focused on it because we had a lot of exposure. And they saw me as kind of a free legal advice because I drafted the credit agreement. So I got brought into all of the senior deliberations asking, can we do this? Can we do that in the documents? And so I got to see how senior bankers thought about decisions and you know how they structure deals, which was invaluable. And I didn't know a lot about finance at that time, but I knew the company really well. I knew the documents better than anybody. So uniquely to that deal, I had value to add. And because it was such a big deal, I didn't have to work on anything else because you know this was a high priority for the firm. We had a lot at stake ended up being a complete recapitalization. Apollo and T.H. Lee put in a billion dollars of equity, a pipe to recap the company. And I think we raised another, call it $2 billion around that to give the company a fresh capital structure. And that took like nine months. And while that was going on, I spent the night that I was otherwise used to working at White & Case tracing the cells in the 270 model to learn accounting. That's how I really learned accounting, which is a pretty good way to learn accounting, actually, just tracing the cash flow three-statement model. And by the time that deal was done through the training program and back-solving what I didn't know, I think I was ready to be an associate. So really lucky that that was the first deal that came across my plate and also lucky that it was successful. So that is such a great story. And I mean, I've known you for all these years. It's the first time I'm hearing the full story and you're taking me back to the training program, the 270 model. Folks <laughs> who came up through those ranks, we all know that very well. And just the fifth floor of syndicated finance and all the leverage lending that we used to do way back when. And now looking back, you've been at the firm for 22 years years. That's amazing. That's a really long run. What has that been like for you? The leverage finance team at JP Morgan has been around for a long time. I mean, there's probably several people that you knew when you were there that are still around. And, you know, it's a really good team. It's a very senior team that's been around together, working together. So that part of it has been very good. I think the culture at JP Morgan is very strong, collaborative culture. And I think it's very well run. It hasn't always felt this way. I think back when you were there, it was a little bit like a sprawling empire where different groups kind of did their own thing. It doesn't feel like that anymore. It feels like it's a very well-managed business. Credit goes to Jamie Diamond and the senior management team because I think they have instilled a very, very strong culture and a very kind of strong management process. And it starts from the top. As far as being there for 22 years, I started in origination, leverage finance origination, and I did that for seven years. And when I started, it was just, you remember, global syndicated finance. It was the right. GSF acronym, which means nothing to anyone other than people from Chase. And that was syndicated lending and high yield was separate. So it was really good at leverage loans, syndicated loans, but bonds were something that I had to learn and high yield and leverage lending merged to become leverage finance a few years in. And I learned how to do bond deals and did a couple of those. And then I moved to leverage loan capital markets, which is a kind of a unique function within leverage finance. And for those that you know aren't as familiar with how the different parts of leverage finance works, originations 
are the guys that pitch for the business with the client that negotiate the credit agreement, structure the deal, put all the marketing materials together and execute the transaction in, in market through close. Capital markets is a very specific function. It's a small group that looks at almost uniquely pricing relative to peers that are in the market, you know, strengths and weaknesses, relative value, what's going on in the overall market and prices the deal both at the pitch stage, try to win the deal and, and launch, which is a bit of an art form. I learned that over three years and that was different, interesting. I worked on a lot more deals because you're, you're a small part of many more deals than in origination where you're soup to nuts on a few deals going very deep. And then 2007 happened where people think about the Great Recession starting in 2008. It actually started in 2007. I remember I had towards the end of July, and you may remember that there were a couple of Bear Stearns funds that were wobbling and were basing redemptions, but the equity markets continued full bore. And it was the weirdest time. And we had launched a few deals into market to crickets, like no one showed up. Suddenly the market was just dead. Meanwhile, stock market continued to rise. You weren't reading about any of this broadly in the market, but the leverage finance markets were frozen. And it stayed that way through August and into September. And then the equity market started to realize there was a real problem, but it was the dislocation between the debt and equity markets was just fascinating. But I was dead. There was nothing going on. And the head of restructuring at that time, Norma Corio, came over to me and said, hey, listen, you're not busy at all. We're going to be really busy pretty soon. So maybe you want to come over and join restructuring. And I said, you know what, that sounds like a good idea because it was a very uncertain time and restructuring had always been interesting. And those are the most interesting deals. That's a really smart move. I do remember that time very well. And I remember being on a similar trading floor style at a different firm at that time. And everybody wondering when is the spillover effect going to happen? And then when it hit, it hit fast and furious. So I do remember that very well. Yeah. You had those relationships. And when I think back about, you know, the things that you're sharing with us, a lot of it is the relationship building that you did, quite frankly, from the standpoint of being able to make the movement from White and Case to then becoming a banker and then doing great work naturally. I know you say it was luck, but part of it was also you doing great work and then building those relationships, people knowing who you are and the work that you do that then led for certain opportunities to be presented to you. I did work really hard and it was instilled from those first two years at White and Case. It did instill a good work ethic, which I continued. The other thing I did was when I was assigned a project, I owned it soup to nuts. I took a lot of pride in that deal and I pushed really hard to get the deal over the line and anything, whether it's an internal memo or a bank book that we were writing, I made sure it was outstanding work because it's going to reflect on me. And so I viewed my work product as a reflection of me and I was ambitious and wanted to to perform well. And so I think that ultimately you get a reputation for that and then you get put on more interesting deals because they want their top people on the hardest deals. And so I got a lot of exposure to interesting transactions and also got a lot of recognition and visibility internally by being on those big deals. I was fortunate to to make it through that time. I was very happy to be very busy in restructuring. There was a lot to do. So you were very busy then. You've worked your way through the ranks and you've built your team and you've been there for a while. So you have this relationship already with your team, but now we're working virtually and it's one of the busiest years ever. So tell us about how you managed that. Since it was the busiest year we've had by far, 
since the Great Recession years, no question. And it was coming at us from everywhere at once. The virtual thing, it kind of just happened immediately. Zoom was available, something that I hadn't even heard of. It was necessity. Like you had companies in trouble reaching out and we were going to find a way to continue business, continue operating. The great thing about JP Morgan, as I mentioned earlier, is like the senior team's been there for quite a while, uninterrupted. We don't have a lot of attrition at the top ranks. And so the network and the cohesion is there, which I think is a strength for JPM. And so everyone knew what to do. You still go through the same channels to get deals approved, to talk through ideas. Uh, you were just doing it virtually now. Not a lot was lost by going virtual. In fact, a lot of the bureaucracy was cut out. We needed to be expedient. And so the stuff that needed to happen for proper approvals and proper vetting of risks, all that happened. It was a great kind of bureaucracy cutting exercise. I hope when we get back in the office, we don't put all that stuff back. Let's talk a little bit more about as a high performing team, when you're faced with this kind of situation, what are some of the things that you started doing more of? You talked about the fact that some of the bureaucracy went by the wayside. So there are things that you stopped doing. Tell us more about that. And by bureaucracy, I'll put myself at the front of the list. I'm a hands-on guy. I like to be involved in all the details, but there was so much coming. You had entire industries that were melting down retail and energy. Not only did we have you know, COVID, but we also had the Saudis and Russians having a price fight in the oil market and oil went below zero for a few weeks right. <laughs> earlier this year. And all of the energy companies, the oil and gas companies were really hurting. Truth be told, a lot of those companies were not in great shape even before COVID hit. So those industries kind of needed restructuring and they were kind of kicking the can for many years. And a lot of the ones that went through restructuring this year probably were in bad shape to begin with, but there was a lot of them. So what I didn't have the luxury of doing was to be master of all the details of all my deals because there were just too many of them. So I had to delegate a lot more battlefield promotions. And so I just gave them more responsibility and the folks that I thought could handle it, I put people that were probably more junior in title than the responsibilities that I gave them would suggest. First year VP, okay, you're doing retail. And so you're going to own that space and you're going to be point on all that stuff and come to me when you need me. The senior associate is going to do energy. And we also did a better job of leveraging the leverage finance platform. So we've got a huge leverage finance team, as you know. Restructuring is pretty small. We're 10 people. But we've got all of the resources of leverage finance, as well as the, you know, the industry bankers. Their regular way deals looked like they weren't going to be happy for a while. So they were suddenly interested in restructuring and willing to lend a hand. So we leveraged that as well. So it taught me to go by necessity, you know, less deep and cover more ground. And it really focused me on what was the essential function of my role versus the, the stuff that could get done by somebody else. And that was the idea generation, the networking across the restructuring professionals, you know, the pitching, and then a lot of the kind of internal stuff. I was fortunate to find out that I had a capable team that could do that without me if needed with just a little guidance. So it made me much more efficient. And I think if you were to ask people across the firm, they would go through a similar exercise. It was such a busy time and we weren't in, in the office. So we just cut down our efforts to what was absolutely necessary, which we gained a lot of efficiency as a result. How do you see the way that 
you work with your team changing it? What do you think the future holds for restructuring overall? I think restructuring, we had a huge wave, as I said, of companies that needed fixing before this whole thing started. But you had big segments of the oil and gas and oil field services and uh, bricks and mortar retail go through restructuring in 2020. You also had some legacy telecom deals And so those went through as well. And then you had the other piece that I worked on was Latin American Airlines, which, you know, the U.S. and European airlines all got help from the government. Latin American Airlines did not. So there was a wave of those uh, restructurings, dip financings that needed to happen. So we focused on that. I don't see in any of those scenarios more restructuring coming on the back. I think the retail side just accelerated the shift to online at warp speed. You know, we probably took a 10-year leap forward in the move to online retail. And a lot of the, the companies that weren't ready for it did restructure. And what we're left with is there's not a lot of companies left that are in imminent need of restructuring. So I think it's going to be relatively quiet. And the reason for all of that is, of course, the markets came back so strongly. I mean, we're in the the strongest high yield market that we've ever been in. The high yield index is at its lowest point in the history of the high yield market. So on the back of the strength of the high yield market, you know, there's going to certainly be liquidity for companies that need it. So I don't know there's going to be a lot of companies facing kind of liquidity crunches because the market won't support them. There will be some of that, but it'll be relatively small. So I don't think we're in for, in 2021, the same type of tidal wave of restructurings that we had in 2020. I do see pockets where companies have taken on a lot of leverage not all of them are going to be able to delever from that and handle that. But while rates are low, I think that problem gets pushed out into the future a bit. So we'll have to deal with it, but it'll be kind of over time. And then the other piece that we haven't seen completely land is real estate, office rents, residential rents, retail space, all of those rent levels have come down. And those are long-term leases that come up for renegotiation on a staggered basis. So it's not going to hit immediately, but that will that will hit. Although the leverage levels for the most part in real estate were not stratospheric, at least among the public companies. So that may not result in a lot of restructuring, but it'll be certainly lower profitability going forward. But as long as the interest rates stay low, they should be able to manage through that. As far as what it's at all going to look like when we get back into the office, that's a great question. I don't know. I think JP Morgan has been very vocal, as you probably have read, about getting people back into the office. And we've actually been back since Labor Day, one week on, one week off, 50% capacity. We might be out on the forefront of that as employers. We're the biggest non-government employer in, in New York City. I think there was a view that the economic leaders in the city had to take steps to save the city from kind of collapsing and have economic activity get back into the city to support all the small businesses. I think we're going to continue to do that. But that said, I think there'll be much more, you know, working from home. That you know, one hour commute on the train. If you've got something uh, that day, a lot of people are going to be kind of doing that less than five days a week when we get back to normal. But I do think there's a lot to be said for being in the office. And I tell you, when I got back to the office after Labor Day, I missed it. You're much more productive. You're much more creative when you're sitting around a table with colleagues kind of brainstorming in a way that I don't know that Zoom does as well. It's one thing for the seniors that have been around for 20 years with each other, the juniors that are just learning and you're trying to instill the culture into, 
that's a lot harder on Zoom. So I think for the juniors and for the next kind of generation of bankers, it's important to get back into the office for their careers as well. I, I completely agree with you on the part about, because I mean, at FTI, we keep growing. And then we've had people that we've hired in the middle of the pandemic that they never went into an office. We were able to ship them their laptop and phone and things like that and, and whatever else they may need. And then it's a matter of kind of like, how do you reinforce the culture? of collaboration and that, that we have at our firm that I know you have at your firm and that people have that sense of what is it like to work here, right? And, it, and it's really all about the people when you're in a client service business. It really truly is all about the people and the relationships that you're able to build. So I, I think you make an excellent point. It will be interesting to see what happens. I mean, and one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about for you as you kind of like take a look back and, and you think about things, what is it that you, you've learned about yourself as a leader? You've been through all these various different roles at the firm and you dealt with all kinds of uncertain situations. This one was pretty intense, but anytime you're in the financial services industry, it's going to be a roller coaster. We know that going in. So what is it that you've learned about yourself as a leader? There's always room for improvement. It's funny, I got a lot of compliments on my team that un unsolicited XYZ, you know, she's great. She's so conscientious, hardworking all over the details. But what was interesting is that it was remarkably similar for different people on the team. And so, you know, that comes from the culture. And I wasn't aware that my habits and the way I work was impacting anybody except myself. But what I've come to learn is that what you do is absorbed by your team. And that's how culture, people look to the senior person and where possible reflect that same behavior and manner of work. And it was a lesson because it was good, but it also occurs to me that they can also pick up your bad habits as well. So I've started to become much more conscious of how I operate, how I behave, what I say in front of my team, because I'm much more conscious that if it's okay for me to do something, don't be surprised if it shows up in, on a team for good or bad. They're all bright and diligent and they love what they do, which is great because that's point number one in restructuring. If you don't love restructuring, you're not going to like it at all. And you're not going to be that successful. And we've had people that didn't like it and had to soldier through it. But through and on the team, we've done better at bringing people in that know going in that restructuring is an area of interest. And so they don't mind the hard work that it takes because they generally find it interesting. And that's a big prerequisite. But going back to what I've learned is I'm much more conscious of how I behave and what examples I'm putting forward for my team. And then the other piece is that I've learned that they don't need me for everything. A lot of them are capable. If you give them more rope and more leeway, they can actually run with the ball pretty far down the field without assistance. Not everyone, but a lot of them. So I've learned to trust my team more and not be so in the weeds and managing every aspect. Excellent point. So then we're almost coming near the end of the podcast. I like to ask my guests about some of the things that they do outside of work. So tell me, what, what are you obsessed about right now? By the way, I just binge watched The Mandalorian. Baby Yoda is the best thing ever. What are you obsessed about right now? So my kids really like The Mandalorian show. I haven't seen it, but they love it. You know, they've already inhaled all those episodes. So things that I did this year, you know, I spent time with the kids. You know, I focus on that. They had Little League this year, which was in my town, which is great. 
I played a lot of golf with my sons this year. I probably played more golf this year than the last 10 years combined. Especially during COVID, that was one of the few things that I did that I felt comfortable doing. You're outdoors yeah, and exactly. you have a good time with people. Yeah. And that was something that, you know, I hadn't focused on as much. And that's a great way, instead of seeing clients or investors for like dinner or drinks, you can play around of golf and everyone's looking for something to do. So that was good. I, I got into golf a lot this year and now golf season's over, but I'm starting to learn how to play paddle. It's like tennis, but in these cages and they do it in the winter. It's pretty strange, but it's like you're playing with this oversized ping pong racket and you're standing on the court on the table. I mean, it's kind of best way I can describe it with, with a kind of fence around the court. Do you mean racquetball? No, it's outside. It's called paddle. Um, Interesting. Okay. And it's, an, it's a New England thing. They have these courts and people just do it outside in coats and stuff. And it's elevated above, above ground. So if there's snow on the ground, you know, this is above the snow. People do this in winter and uh, I started doing it and it's a lot of fun. So I'm going to have to look this up. Yeah, it's going to sound really strange for people outside New England, but it's a thing out here. And so Dan, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners today? uh, As I think about the career, my career arc. You hit it and you pointed it out. Like a lot of it is based on network and relationships. As I've gotten older, I've recognized how true that is. When I was probably, you know, the first five years or 10, even 10 years of my career, I was just focused on the work, the details, you know, the analysis and getting that right. And you do the work and you get to the right answer. As you get more senior, you realize that that is necessary, but success often has a lot to do with who knows who, relationships, conversations. As I've gotten more senior, I've really tried to focus as much on that aspect of the job and building networks across competitors, clients, investors, just to establish my network in the restructuring community and try to keep those relationships as strong as I can and then to continually grow them. And that's something that as I, as I was starting my career as a lawyer, I had no idea was even a thing. It's actually quite important. And as you get more senior, that becomes a bigger part of your job. Like there's others that can do the work, but the relationship is as important as anything else. I think that's a great point. And I know our firms do a lot of work together. So we appreciate the relationship that we have at the organizational level. And I also appreciate the relationship that I have with you on a personal level. So thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. It was great to do this. And thanks for thinking of me for the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.